Psalm 133 from the Psalter of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Today, first, we'll be in the book of Romans, chapter 13. We've been going over some things on the law of God as they came up in the text. As we know, the great division of Christianity on the planet basically falls into two categories. Those that take the Bible as the very word of God and those that do not. And so it's a little bit confusing to people to say those are the categories of Christianity, but really, for reasons we've talked about before, those are the two categories within those that take the Bible as the word of God, which is not every denomination or group. The main division that really came to its own at the time of the Reformation during the late 14 and early 1500s 
is whether or not you believe that you're justified by the grace of God alone or by some combination of the grace of God and good works. And Jesus battled with the Pharisees and the Sadducees within the New Testament itself over the place of good works within a person's salvation. As you know, the way that we take it and the way that we think the, the Apostle Paul is teaching it is that good works flow from salvation. They are not the cause of your salvation. In other words, you can't be good enough for God, but once you know the grace of God, you can certainly try to live a holy and righteous life out of gratitude to God and love for God and your neighbor. The next issue that comes in is, of course, what are those laws? What is the moral law of God? What is it to love another person and what is it not? Now, here's a place that even within that evangelical landscape, and when I say evangelical, I know that none of you know what I'm talking about because I don't know what I'm talking about. Evangelicalism is kind of an amorphous word that is almost like being Protestant, but not quite, and it means a few things, and there's a few professors from seminaries and from colleges that have said, here's the definition of evangelical, and some evangelicals agree with it, and some evangelicals don't. But originally, it was a slang term to insult Lutherans for believing they had to go out and share the gospel with people. But now it just pretty much means anybody that believes in evangelism and the actual conversion of the heart by the Holy Spirit. Within that, different people take different laws as having perpetuity or not having perpetuity from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant and so from the Old Testament to the New Testament. Some people take almost nothing as being a law of God, and some people take almost everything as being a law of God. One of the most notable things that we really focus on in this is the dietary laws of the Old Testament. I'm sure everybody in here has probably eaten shellfish at one time or another. I've seen some of you do it. The Bible says not to. Why would you break that law? The point being, there are some places in the New Testament where it explicitly says... All foods are declared clean. That was a ceremonial law of the Old Testament. It's not a moral law of the New Testament. In other words, it was always meant to teach something other than itself. It wasn't meant to teach that eating shellfish was bad. It was meant to teach the separation of clean and unclean foods and the relationship of these things spiritually until the coming of Jesus Christ because the coming of Jesus Christ was so much clearer than the Old Covenant with all its signs and types and shadows. So when we get into the new covenant, now there's this new conversation within the church. Well, then which laws have perpetuity and which laws don't? And we brought up murder is a really good one to keep around if you can. Thou shalt not murder. Because if that's not a law in perpetuity, a moral law that's binding upon the Christian and before the Christian, you're going to have a lot of problems in society. Also lying, stealing, adultery, all of these things are not ceremonial laws that were trapped in the Old Testament covenant, but eternal, perpetual, unchanging laws that are the expression of the moral nature of God himself. A while ago, you know, there was this big fad of having the WWJD bracelet, bracelet on, right? What would Jesus do? And then the Presbyterians, because we're always, you know, kind of snarky jerks, we all said, well, you know, we do what Jesus did do. He perfectly kept the law in thought, word, and deed. What did Jesus do? Not what would he do. What did he actually do? Well, he perfectly kept all of the law, especially the law of the heart, we might call it, where he perfectly loved God and perfectly loved his neighbor all the time. Now, we notice that with Jesus, perfectly loving your neighbor is not equated with being nice to your neighbor. 
Was Jesus nice? He was obviously nice, but he was nicer to some people than to others. Children were enwrapped by Jesus. They always came up to him. They loved him and they wanted to be with him. Sometimes even the apostles themselves got between Jesus and the children and said, children, stay back. Jesus is an important person doing ministry. And he had to rebuke his own apostles and say, don't get between me and the children. Not only do they love me and they should love me, but the kingdom of God is more like them than it is like you, frankly, right? So at the same time, when he dealt with the Sadducees and the Pharisees, the experts of the law that were trying to tell everybody how to be moral, he would usually chop them off some choice words, wouldn't he? He would correct them in some severe... They were grown men, right? He didn't necessarily have to be nice to be good and loving. Sometimes to be loving to the world, you have to tell them some things they don't want to hear. You have to remember that Jesus loved them so much and so perfectly that they killed him for it. Now that's love. In this chapter 13, this is another one of those controversial passages where a lot of people say what it's saying here is that you have to submit yourself to the government at all times no matter what they say. Now that's a very strange interpretation of this passage, but it's very popular right now. I would say more Christians probably believe that than anything else, even though if you look back through the history of the church, you won't find a single person that believed that before, say, 1800. You won't find a single commentator, a major uh, Christian figure, a major pastor, or a major writer, of, or a doctrine of the church that says, do whatever the government tells you, no matter what, out of submission to Christ. That's just a strange interpretation, especially because so many of the people in the early church in the first three, three centuries, they died for their faith, for disobeying governments so that they might obey the laws of love in Jesus Christ. So it says here, the Apostle Paul writing in Romans chapter 13, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Well, sure. For there is no authority except for God. So that's saying God sets up the legitimate government in every sphere in the world. There's no place you go that there is no government. Now, as you know, I grew up out west, and so our fascination out there was with cowboy culture. I remember being eight years old when we went on our field trip. We went to the OK Corral, and it was awesome. We got our little guns, and then you had these paper caps you could stick in there. Pow, pow, pow. And I still remember the smell of the, gu of the uh, gunpowder, and those were awesome, right? Now kids can't play with those because they might have fun. But in those days, it was awesome. <laughs> Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. But we have to be careful about what he's saying here because he's not giving a blank check to every government to do anything they want at any possible time. It is interesting that over the last 150 years with the changes that have happened in the world, especially since the Enlightenment, the separation, not of church and state, but of God and the state, has led to many of the most horrific things in human history just in our last 150 years. The First and Second World War, the communist revolutions, the things that were going on in places like Korea and Vietnam down to today. It's governments, godless governments, unhinged from any law but their own will. And the human will, unhinged from the law of God, does not do anything good. For he is God's servant, moving down to verse 5 here. Therefore, one must in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but for the sake of conscience, 
For this reason, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God to do this very thing. So pay all that's owed, taxes to whom taxes, revenue to whom revenue, respect to whom respect, honor to whom honor. And that's where most people stop reading the text before he explains what he's talking about. Because then he says this, Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandment, then he talks about the commandments that he's talking about. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment is summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. So when the Apostle Paul gets to what he's talking about, he's talking about the exact same commandments that were given in the beginning. The Apostle Paul is not setting up a different or a distant law. He quotes the Ten Commandments in order to tell you how to love your neighbor. We notice this friction in the Bible that we can love our neighbor well even when they're really making us mad. I know that every one of you has that one neighbor that drives you crazy, right? They do things you don't like. They're writing you bad letters. They're yelling. They're having parties in the middle of the night. You have that one neighbor. And you don't like them. But you love them. You don't commit adultery against them. You don't steal from them. You don't lie about them. You don't steal from them. You don't try to murder them. You're showing them the laws of love, but your internal feelings, your subjective appetites might not be in complete resolution with these people, right? This is how you understand those things that say things in the Bible like, be at peace with everyone as much as it has to do with you. Every once in a while, somebody's not going to allow you to be at peace with them. They're going to be the aggressive one. But as much as it has to do with you, you're going to show them the love of Jesus Christ. Now, will you always feel loving toward them? That's just not what these passages are talking about. Every once in a while, the Huns come over the hills and try to take over the city. And you've got to go out there with your axes and your pitchforks and you've got to drive them back, right? You're not happy about it while you're doing it. You're not going, oh, we love you. Yeah. <laughs> Would be ridiculous, right? At the time, you're mad. And that's how we understand those psalms where you even have David crying out for the destruction of his enemies, but also saying, if you find anything wrong in me, then rebuke me. But because I think I'm innocent in this, I want you to be on my side and rebuke them. And then he goes out to fight the enemies of God. But he did not break the law of God or his law of love toward them in protecting the people from an enemy. If necessary only if necessary, through violence. How can you love people that you're being violent toward? You're not lying about them. You're not trying to murder them. You're not trying to steal. You want to be at peace with them, but sometimes they won't let you be at peace. So then he says this in verse 11, Besides, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for your salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. Now, we're going to go back to 12. He had already written 12 and expected you to read it before you read that portion so you'd be warmed up for it. But just to talk about how he's talking about the law, when he says what things you have to obey the world and the state in, it's the Ten Commandments. What if they told you, you may never utter the name of Jesus Christ again, and you may never go to church again, ever? Well, now the state has obviously given you a commandment that Christ has given you a different commandment, and you, do not, you are not allowed by God to obey that commandment. 
How many of the missionaries have gone over into difficult places and have told people about the love of Jesus Christ and have suffered death for it? Were they not breaking the law? Were they in submission to the authorities? God says they actually were, but then the authorities went beyond the authority that God gave them. Remember how it said, every authority set up by God, he's granted them that authority, he wants you to obey that authority, but he doesn't want you to obey their authority contrary to his authority. That's a confusion of authority. When God sets up governments, he sets them up for a good purpose to do good things, which is to protect the rights and the well-being and even the property of the people. And if governments rise up against that thing, you guys know the old, you know, the, basically the Presbyterian church was planned and put together by that guy John Knox back in the 1500s. You remember John Knox? Who said, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. And he had read the Bible a few times. So we need to understand what's being said there. You may never break the moral laws of God, even in regard to your enemy. You must love the government, you must love the president, you must love the laws, you must love the land, you must love your community. But if it goes as far as to tell you to break the laws of God, we remember that you know recently in our historical memory, there was a huge Christian movement in China. And through the 1940s and 1950s, another movement rose up against that. And it conquered them, and they've been under communist dictatorship ever since. With that, they passed a law that people could not have more than one child. And if they got pregnant and were going to have more than one child, they were often forced against their will to have an abortion. But the Christian did not line up for that abortion in obedience to the laws of the land. When I was there last time, I had this strange conversation with folks. One of the ones that I didn't expect is uh, there were about seven or 800 people at this secret service it was in a warehouse down by a dock. There were no doors on the building. You basically had to come under a tunnel to get in so that people couldn't spy on you. And they were going through question and answer. And one of the ladies asked, how many children do you have? And apparently I gave the wrong answer. Because I said six. And they went wild. And this was a very sedate group that was very well-mannered. But they had recently uh, excommunicated someone for having a third child because it showed a lack of self-discipline and self-control. The reading of the Bible was different. So we had to get into a long conversation about different interpretations of the law of God and what morality was. Now, if they, in obedience to the government and to avoid persecution, maybe don't have more children, that's one thing. But certainly we couldn't go to the place of starting to exterminate the children that we have now. You understand that most of the big movements in history, what was their primary method for the control of poverty and reducing the number of poor people. From the time of Rome, it's always been to kill them. That's how the Russian Revolution got rid of 80 millionism. That's how Mao got rid of 40 million of them. So the means that we use have to be in accord with the law of God. Even if you're a government or a state, you are a state under the laws of God. No government on earth is allowed to disobey the laws of God in pursuing the interests of their particular nation. But we do get back to the subjective aspect of loving your neighbor and the way that's expressed, right? That's the objective aspect where he's telling you what to do out there in your interactions, possibly with people that aren't even Christians. So, but in chapter 12, he's already warmed you up by saying this, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Then he's going to do a brief aside here, and I'm going to go ahead and read it, but we're not going to stop on it for right now for the sake of time. Verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith which God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in serving one another. Who teaches in his teaching. The one who exhorts in his exhortation. The one who contributes in generosity. The one who leads with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And now we get down to the place where he's showing us what love is. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. You notice that in regard to the state, he doesn't use the term affection. It would just be weird. Be weird for you. It'd be weird for them in that time. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful. That means lazy in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and show, seek to show hospitality. Now he's starting to lay the burden on you. What does it look like when we do this? What does it look like when we walk this way? I want you to turn and look at the people on your left. Now turn and look at the people on your right. Whether or not you know it or not, whether or not you've thought about it, these are the people that God has specifically given you to walk through this life with. You are meant and intended to lean on them. They are meant and intended to lean on you. Not a single one of you will ever make it through this life as an individual Christian walking alone and separate. We are not lone wolves. We are a pack animal. Do you understand what I'm saying? Even your faith is made stronger by the faith of the people around you. And their strength is your strength and your strength is their strength. We lean on each other. We walk together. We're strengthened by each other. We're all stronger together than any one of us are apart. Do you remember that interesting verse where Jesus said, you know, if one sheep goes astray, he'll go out and find that sheep. He'll leave the rest on the hill and he'll go find it. That's because that sheep is soon going to be somebody's lunch. And you have to bring them back in through love and charity and forgiveness. But you have to bring them back in. Uh, The thing about sin is it's great. Think about it, right? Why does everybody want to do it? It's not because it's not pleasurable. God even says sin is like pleasurable for a minute or two, but then it's like all bad, right? In that, you can tell whether or not someone's a Christian, taking scripture seriously, by how they react to their own sins. Do they sin and they hate that sin, but they fail and they struggle? Do they sin and they stop that sin and they come back? Do they come to God and say, I've sinned, restore me. And then they're restored. There is no sin, very uncomfortably for a lot of Christians, that God cannot restore a person from. Read the story of David and you'll see how far he went outside of the will of God and was brought back in. 
<clears throat> at the same time, the person that is bald-faced in it, that is haughty in it, that they either say, what I have done that is wrong is good, or that God accepts it, or that God loves evil and hates what's good, or they say the Bible doesn't really say that, or even if the Bible says it, it's not really to be taken that seriously. So that they can go on in a particular sin and live in that way without the recompense and the due justice that God lays upon them. That's how you tell the difference between two people doing exactly the same sin and yet one is a Christian and the other is not. The one that loves their sin more than Christ, that's not going to be somebody who's going to persevere in the faith. And you have to remember this because church is incredibly popular and Christianity is not. Then in verse 14, he says one of the hardest verses in the Bible. It's really one of the hardest. It is in the Old Testament. You find it in many places, usually scattered out. But when you get to Jesus, he starts to really hammer this home. And he starts to say it very specifically as the sign and mark of a Christian's love that's an expression of their faith. Remember, we don't make it an expression of their love that results in their faith. We believe very specifically regeneration precedes faith. Let's say that again. Regeneration precedes faith. You're not loving enough that you get to the place where you can believe. You believe and so you love. So here he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Loving the people that are after you and loving the people that insult you and loving the people that belittle you or even, God forbid, that just don't think very highly of you. It's a tough calling to even love those that hate you. But you have to remember that except for the grace of God, you would be right there with them. There's an inherent tendency within worldly people that do not have the Holy Spirit to be resistant or even offended by the presence of Christ and his people. And you might think to yourself, well, but the more I love them, it'll all change. Well, sometimes it does and sometimes she don't work that way. Right? Your calling is to love them no matter what. Even if they resist you, even if they hate you, even if they persecute you, you bless them and you do not curse them. Because you understand that the blessing that you have is not something you earned or something you deserve, but something that was given to you as a gift. He says, rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. I know this is so hard, right? You're not sitting here right now thinking, oh, that's hard. But when it happens, that's when it's hard. Repay no one evil for evil? Doesn't the Bible say an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? You have to remember that as we went over those passages, those are talking about governments and states and the due recourse from when somebody does something. If somebody accidentally kills your cow, you get back their cow, right? It's not talking about the inner state of the Christian heart who's filled with the Spirit of God. He has a much higher standard of behavior for, for you than just an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. 
To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, I want you to feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In this context, being overcome by evil would be becoming evil because you've suffered evil. You'll see two people that have suffered the same evil. One of them, it turns them more and more evil. And the other, it turns them as soft as wax so that they can be turned to and fro by God unto his purpose. All of us suffer. We don't all suffer well. So again, you know, we have to be careful on telling you guys the law of God so that you don't become overwhelmed by it because it's a high standard. Jesus did it, but face it. He's God and you're not, right? He's perfect. And this is what he did every day in thought, word, and deed. When you read through his passages and you read through his stories and you see him there telling people to do things and sometimes getting angry with people. One time, you know, he goes into the temple and he starts lashing people with a rope and throwing over their tables. And he kicked them all out of there and they had it coming. And I guarantee you, it was all done in love. Jesus was not having a bad day, right? But he showed them love to teach them love. In this, uh, if you can adopt this and you can strive for this, and if you live for this, even if you only reach 60, 70% of it, you're going to do real well in life. None of us are perfect, especially in love, but if we strive to not be overcome by the evil, but to overcome the evil with good, then God will bless you in this life.